The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So we're going to be in Galatians 2, uh, 11 to 14. So if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to read the passage, and then as we get to those points, I uh, will project the text so we can look, look at it. Uh, but before we read uh, God's Word, before we expound this passage, let's turn to him in prayer. God, as each of us comes here from a different uh, place, having had different experiences this week, having experienced uh, frustration and joy and all the things that being human entails, I pray that you would open us up now to your word. I pray that your spirit would be active among us, active in us, helping us to see Jesus helping us to respond uh, each in our own way, each in our own uh, position. Uh, you have called each of us in unique ways, and we'll hear this text in different ways. We pray that in that, in that diversity that you would bring about unity and that your spirit would conform us more into the image of Jesus as a result of this text today. Quiet our hearts, quiet our interior noise, and help us to, to see you. Amen. So I'm going to read, oh, one more time. There we go. If you couldn't hear that at home, that was a really distracting noise where I'd have to make some excuse for that. All right, now we're focused. Uh, So Galatians 2, and I'm going to focus in on 11 to 14. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in, their, uh, in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, in today's passage, we come to one of the more intriguing parts of Galatians, uh, if not the New Testament as a whole. Uh, Conflict is obviously not new to the Bible, but this one is different. This passage centers around a public argument, uh, which makes it stand out. Um, But we've seen that kind of thing before. Like, we've seen Jesus confront uh, the religious leaders of his day uh, in the book of Acts. We've seen times where Paul is in conflict and in opposition to religious leadership, and there's, there's arguing there. Paul even makes arguments in his individual letters. So if you think back uh, to 1 Corinthians, Paul is in some measure of conflict uh, inside the church or between him and the church. Uh, But this situation in Galatians is unique in the sense that it's two very well-known leaders. So there's more weight, there's more gravity in this scenario than there is in the others. Because sometimes that conflict is, like, say, Jesus with a group. So there's not always a human face on the other side of the conflict. Here is two very well-known leaders. So it gives it gives it more gravity. And as careful readers of God's word, we want to be attentive and careful 
as we think about this. And here's the tricky part of the passage. Initially, I thought, like, well, it's only a couple verses, pretty simple, they're arguing, and we're done. The application is not actually immediately accessible. It's not a situation where, like, Paul is telling people not to be drunk with wine. Like, the application there is pretty straightforward. You don't need a PhD in New Testament studies to figure that one out. The application is very straightforward. But in this case, the application's a little bit tricky. Uh, we're not apostles. We don't regularly argue publicly with apostles. We understand conflict, but this conflict is of a different sort. And when we think about context, context is one of those words that Christians use that may or may not have a ton of meaning. Like, if, like when I first became a believer in college, I remember people referring to context, and I heard it enough that I thought it was an important Christian word, even though I didn't really know what it meant. And it, it, when in doubt, you just like almost hit the eject button, like, well, you've got to think about the context, and then everybody nods knowingly, and then you hope that there's no follow-up questions because you don't really know what that word means. When I say, <laughs> sorry, that's just my own, my own uh, autobiography. Um, but when we think about context, we're just thinking about the who, the what, the where, the how, the why. Those, we're just paying attention to those elements as we read. And in the Bible, you can usually get by with like one or two of them being critically important. Like maybe it's the who and the what. And you can focus on those. And the where maybe isn't quite as important. Or there are other passages where the, the where is really the critical thing. In this particular passage, I think every single one of them is really important. So even in preparing this, I've had to kind of pare down, like, okay, we can't spend disproportionate amounts of time on all of these things. So before we get started, I'd like to point out certain signposts that I hope are going to guide us. So if you've hiked uh, in the, the beautiful state of New Hampshire, sometimes when you're hiking down, you'll see these stone pillars uh, as you're walking down the trail. They're usually right along the trail. They're called cairns. And up until a couple years ago, I just thought that people set these up either as uh, works of art or like a testimonial to the fact that they hiked these mountains, like, I made this pile of stones because I hiked this mountain. And I thought, well, they're quite lovely. I didn't realize that they actually serve a very practical purpose, that when the snow starts to fly, as you're walking down, that might be the only thing that you can see. So they're all along the trail so that you can actually see your way uh, down. That's just my small public service announcement for hiking during the winter. Take great care. Uh, those are serious and treacherous conditions out there, as you read in the Union Leader on a semi-regular basis. But I'd like to give a few, um, a few signposts here, just things that we can sort of look to as uh, we're working through this passage. First, some background on Peter is going to be necessary. I think that there are some critical things about uh, Peter from the book of Acts that really help to shed light on what's happening here and show that it's not just an argument, it's not just conflict inside the church. There's something very specific that happens here. And if we ignore that, I think that our application is going to be superficial and it's going to be a little bit sloppy because we're, we're not paying attention to all the texture that's happening here. And it's not to be tedious. 
it really is, I think, uh, critically important. Because as we're dealing with conflict, I'm somewhat of an avoidant person. When I see conflict, I'm usually like, all right, that's awesome. I'm going to go stand over here. My political conversations as of late usually involve me getting up and going into the other room. Or if somebody's you know, discussing religious sorts of issues, like, oh, that's awesome. Good luck with that. I'm going to go over here. So when we enter into this conflict, we want to be careful about what's going on. We don't want to rush headlong into into what's happening here and, and mishear it. So we want to be very careful because, you know, truth be told, I think that this text and others can be used by Christians to be aggressive. Like, oh, see how Paul just went after him publicly? Like, we should go after people publicly. That's what I'm talking about when I say kind of a sloppy application. That, like, you see Paul going for it, and that becomes a license to go for it. There's a different kind of thing happening here. So I am more, uh, more of a person who likes to pause. Just say, well, let's look at everything that's, that's happening here. Second, and to piggyback off that, there are specific elements here of Peter's sin, and I'm going to call it that. There are specific elements of Peter's sin that need careful attention. And as we drill down in the passage, I think that this is going to become uh, more clear. There's a lot of things at work here, and I think that we can see it uh, very clearly once we drill down. And I'm not saying Peter's sin out there as some abstract reality, um, but there's, it's the same corruption that we all carry. And I think that once we see this background on Peter... Uh, we're gonna. I think. I think we're gonna be able to see this um, together. We carry that same, that same corruption. We need to be aware of it, and we need to be confronted in the same way that Peter was. So, as we're going through this, I think that we can see, and this is my main point today. Grace compels us to walk in integrity. So that's the main point. Grace compels us to walk in integrity. Now, the passage will use the word hypocrisy multiple times, and that is the presenting problem with Peter here. And that's a negative way of stating what I think, if I were to take the positive virtue, it would be integrity. And I don't mean integrity as a synonym for honesty or uprightness or any of that stuff. The actual like definition is you live an integrated life. Who you are in one particular situation is who you are in another situation, right? Does that make sense? That's what integrated means. Um, and there's lots of different ways that we can think about this. Uh, so when I have my Christian friends over, I don't have a magic lever on my bookshelf that I pull and then all of my John Piper and you know Tim Keller books come to the front and all my liberal books get hidden in the back. Or I don't, like, reset the radio station so that when people get in the car, it's playing K-Love. I don't, you know, I might very well have it on K-Love, and that's fine, but I'm not living a double life. Like, I'm, I'm tucking my rage against the machine CDs under the seat so that people don't see them, and, and I'm, I'm listening to religious podcasts. All that stuff is, in my humble opinion, good. The, the, the hypocrisy comes when you're trying to live the double life. And that's, what it, that's the word, hypocrisy. It's play-acting. You put a mask on, you're different people in different situations. One of the best definitions I've heard comes out of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, when Jean-Louise Finch says to their neighbor, like, oh, my father Atticus would never do something like that. And the response from the neighbor is, 
your father is the same in his living room as he is walking down the street. That's the perfect definition of integrated. For good or ill, you are who you are. And in any situation, uh, that's what integrity is. So I'd like to focus our reflections around three things. First, we're going to see confrontation. Second, we're going to see confusion. And then we're going to see correction in verse 14. But before we dive in to the passage itself, let's just talk through some, some context real quick. So up to this point in Galatians, Paul is defending his apostleship and his gospel. And right out of the gate, in verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ. And, God. and you're like, whoa, that is a really quick way to start. Like, you're starting to wonder, like, boy, why is Paul so adamant about defending that his apostleship is from God and not from man. And then he continues on in that vein. Even up to last week, uh, you, can, you can see that he's defending his apostleship. Um, he's showing, uh, in one sense, that his apostleship doesn't come from Jerusalem. And he's talking about how he's already been ministering the gospel before he even went to the Jerusalem leadership. So as New Englanders, we can admire that sort of independent spirit, right? That Paul's not beholden to anyone. He's his own man. He preaches his gospel. But on the other extreme, you have to show that he's not rogue. So Paul also, in the letter so far, has shown that his gospel was endorsed by the Jerusalem leadership. So while he's independent, his gospel doesn't come from Jerusalem. It's not a completely different gospel. And all the while, we've only had one real reference to who Paul is addressing. There's this group of agitators that Paul mentions. There's these people who, I think the translation says, who are disturbing you. And these are the people that have come in to Galatia. Um, I think that they're just a fringe group. And I think later on in Galatians, uh, Paul seems to hint that it's actually one person who's causing all of this disruption. And you have to ask yourself, well, why does Paul need to do this? Like, the tone of Galatians is so different than the other letters. He comes off as defensive. His tone is, is aggressive. It's just a very different letter. And I think it does call for us to just ask careful questions. And I think if I could set up just a quick scenario, you have Paul preaching the gospel in Galatia. They believe the gospel. And then you have this group come in afterward. These are the agitators. These are the people who are going to say, yeah, Paul gave you a little bit. He gave you a little taste of the gospel, but we're here to fill out the full portrait. If you want to be a real Christian, and that's when like all sorts of negative, red flag, this is uh, where we need some caution. If you want to be a real Christian, you need to be circumcised. And the reason that Paul didn't tell you that is because he just did, he's a people pleaser. Paul didn't want to offend you, right? So now we're here to give you the real story. So for 1995 plus shipping and handling, you can join our program. Like this is, I mean, minus the shipping and handling. That's a pretty plausible scenario where, and it makes sense of Paul saying, am I still trying to please men here? Like he makes some very stark statements about it. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a different gospel, they should be accursed. And then he says, am I still trying to please man here? Right? So you can see how Paul is responding to this group. 
So up to this point, Paul's making a lot of defensive statements, and we can infer a lot. But we haven't really gotten to the crystal clear, like, what's actually happening here? And Paul's actually going to use this confrontation with Peter to pivot to his real argument, which is going to happen for the rest of chapter 2 and into 3 and even into 4. Some very tightly packed argument there. And, quite honest, challenging to, to read. If, if we're honest, like even as we go through the first part of chapter two, like, whoa, some pretty serious stuff going on there. I'm not quite sure I always track with that. And then the images that he uses, we have to really think hard about that. But anyway, so as we focus today, we have all of this in, in our background. Paul is responding to this group of agitators. So let's go from there. First, we see conflict. But when Cephas, I should have the text up there. Excellent. Thank you, guys. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, where this happened is critically important, right? So as we're asking the where question, Antioch is, among other things, the first place where Christians were actually called Christians. So if we go to the next slide. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Um, So it's actually an important geographic point for the early church. It's sort of a missionary hub. Gentile conversions are happening at a high rate. Um, And it, again, as such, was part of uh, Paul's ministry. And as you read the book of Acts, you'll actually see the the center of attention kind of goes from Jerusalem to Antioch. And all of that to say, it's just an important place geographically. The fact that the argument with Peter happening there, that's significant geographically. It seems that Peter was a regular in Antioch, um, and it's also a place where we're going to get to Acts 10 in a minute. He works out his Gentile mission here. Like Paul had, or excuse me, Peter had a vision. And from the text, we can say that he's regularly engaged in table fellowship with the Gentiles. So we'll talk about that as we go. The where is important just because it highlights that this is a very public event. There would have been a huge audience, um, and the word would have traveled from there. Because it's such an important location, this confrontation with Peter and Paul is not going to stay local. So I'm from upstate New York, from the bustling metropolis uh, Scaticoke. Anybody ever heard of it? I'm shocked. It's just a small farming community. It was like third grade before we could spell it. It means the land where the waters mingle, in case you were curious. Um, But the point being is it's not a central location. Antioch is. So it's not like this is happening out in the sticks somewhere. This is a very public place, and that's why it's important. It's an important missionary hub as well. Um, It's not an isolated event. This is... Heavyweight fight in Vegas, if that, if that means anything to you. And as we go through this verse, Paul's language is also very severe. This is no quiet side conversation. There's no private one-on-one where he has to pull Peter aside and talk about this. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Opposing him to his face doesn't mean that he just met with him privately and had that idiom actually means in the presence of all, which will actually be stated later in the passage as well. It says before everyone we had this, this confrontation. And 
being condemned, like he stood condemned, is a pretty serious thing. It doesn't mean that P- Peter's not saved. It's not a salvific thing. It just, other translations will say he was, he was clearly in the wrong, or he was to be blamed, or he was very wrong. So it doesn't mean that Peter's outside the camp. It's this public confrontation has to happen in this way because Peter is 110% in the wrong. That's why he had to go after him so aggressively. And we'll, we'll flesh that out as we keep going. So the stage is set for our conflict. Next, in verses 12 and 13, we move into some confusion. Verse 12 says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So just by virtue of the word, you can see that the central issue here is hypocrisy. It's play-acting. It's wearing a mask. It's trying to be one person in one setting. But then, oh, all of a sudden, these Jerusalem leaders, this party of the circumcision comes, I'm going to act in a different way. So Peter has been living one way, when these certain men were not around, and then he begins to withdraw. He holds himself aloof. He pulls away from table fellowship uh, with the Gentiles. And I think that we can all resonate with this. It's just, (laughs) it's old-fashioned fear. That's all it is. You feel the pressure, the external pressure of other people's expectations, and it causes you to act in a way that you might not otherwise act. And I think that we can all, in our own way, attest to times where that's happened, where we remained silent on an issue when we should have spoken out, or we spoke out on an issue when we should have remained silent. I think that we can understand fear as a motivator in a lot of different ways. And that's what's happening here uh, with Peter. It's fear that compels this. And I think that we can understand that. Um, and there's lots of different ways uh, that we that we could explore that. But this is my point that Paul, or excuse me, Peter is moving away from integrity. So grace compels us to walk in integrity. Peter's doing that in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden he feels this pressure. And now he's living this double life. He's putting on his mask, depending on who's there. And this is where Peter starts to move away from integrity. And that's why Paul has to address this. First, we have the issue of table fellowship. Uh, It might not be as big a deal to us, but I think we can understand. In the ancient world, who you eat with and who you don't eat with is important. It's a social status kind of thing. And for the Jews, it's a religious thing. That we show who we are by virtue of who we don't eat with. Right? And you can imagine as as a Gentile outsider, how are you going to feel about Jews in that that particular case? Like, I don't want to eat with them anyway. They're pretentious people. I don't want to eat with anybody. Right? And, And depending on your background, you can understand a Christianity that is perhaps defined more by what you don't do than what you do. Anyone kind of relate to that? We are known, not we as King's Cross, but out there in the world, we are known as the church that doesn't, you know, fill in the blank with whatever. And that's, that's a problem. So there's a, a variety of reasons that uh, Jews don't eat with Gentiles, but the fact that Peter is engaged is a very big deal for the simple reason that it indicates God's endorsement of the Gentile mission. 
as missionary activity continues, this is important. Peter, people are going to follow Peter's example in this. Peter is a leader in the church. We're going to get to Acts 10 in a second where we can show that he is actually the bridge to the Gentile. I know that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, but we're going to see it was Peter first. So his eating with Gentiles has a very positive effect, but his withdrawal from table fellowship would have an equally negative effect, both on the Gentiles and anyone who would follow Peter's example. Think about it. People would see Peter doing this, and they would begin to treat Gentiles as second rate. Peter's withdrawal from table fellowship reestablishes the old identity markers. And in Christ, those are done. So, for, so Galatians later on will say, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, like this is what Peter's doing. He's setting up the old identity markers by withdrawing from table fellowship. And that's bad enough in and of itself. It's worse because other people follow that example. So either influence, either the positive or the negative influence is going to spread. And Peter has to confront this. Or excuse me, Paul has to confront this. I'm always going to get those two mixed up, Peter and Paul. Not just to rebuke Peter for what he did, but as a message to the people who are watching this. Like, this is why it has to be public. The New Testament does outline, like, a clear way to confront people. Right? In Matthew 18, you go to somebody privately. If that doesn't resolve the issue, you bring a couple more, and then like it, it gets more public from there. There's no evidence of that happening here. This is public sin, and it has to be addressed publicly and immediately. So there's a bit of whiplash here, like as, I mean, if you've ever sailed before, this isn't like gradually tacking your way back home. This is like a sudden, abrupt turn of the ship, which is why the passage can be so shocking. There's no space here for wishy-washy compromise. There's no gradually working your way back to appropriate behavior. This has to stop, and it has to stop now. Now, this is where we're invited, I think, in a lot of ways to enter into the passage imaginatively. Like, picture being there, right? And identify with whoever you want, right? Identify with Peter, with Gentiles. So you have a scenario where, for the first time in your life, as a Gentile, you are engaged in table fellowship with a Jewish person. And not only that, but because it's Peter, he is talking about Jesus. He is, com you know, communicating God's love to you. And even the act of table fellowship in itself is acceptance. So having dealt your whole life with, I, I'll negatively call it Jewish pretense, like you're, you're withdrawing from table fellowship. We won't get into that. But after living with all of that for so long, you feel this sense of, of being integrated into what God's doing. Now you can imagine, like I, <laughs> I teach middle school, so I like the cafeteria is. I mean, back when we used to like use the cafeteria, back when there were humans in our buildings. Sorry, that's I'll, I'll suppress the rage. But the point being, you know that dynamic, like you know the anxiety of walking into the cafeteria, and 
praying to the maker that there's going to be somebody to sit with, right? We can all feel that pressure in some way, showing up to the dance by yourself, showing up to any event by yourself. Like, we can understand that. So you feel integrated, you feel accepted, and it's a felt thing, right? You are included in what God is doing. Peter's proclaiming that faithfully. You are part of what God is doing. God is grafting in the Gentiles. And I think that there's just a lot of joy and a lot of positivity surrounding that, in addition to the truth. <laughs> sorry, I was about to pull a like, dive into the back, sorry. Um, now, imagine all of a sudden this fringe group comes in, and all of a sudden Peter's not so warm anymore. Like, hey, Peter, come over and sit with us. Uh, sorry. Just imagine psychologically what that does to you. Right? And I don't think it's a stretch for us to imagine that this communicates to the Gentiles, nope, you're still second rate. You can say what you want all day long. That act in and of itself communicates that you are second rate. And I can sense in Paul, you are going to undermine the entire operation by doing this. So for Paul, this cannot stand. So I don't mean to you know, sound aggressive or any of that stuff. Paul is aggressive, and I want to fill out why. He's not just arguing. And quite frankly, Paul, Paul doesn't even care about being right. Like, you read the New Testament, this dude doesn't care about anything other than following Jesus. He's getting kicked out of city. He's getting flogged. People are rejecting him at every single turn. He's not doing this like somebody who goes to social media for the number of likes they can get because they're edgy and offensive. This isn't the kind of confrontation that Paul's in. He's defending the gospel, and he's defending marginalized people. That is a critical component to what's happening here. It's not argument for argument's sake. This cannot stand. You are undermining the gospel in the way that you do this. So let's look at some background here just to turn our attention to Peter's story for a couple minutes. And we have some slides here. I apologize, the text is small. I'll read it. This is Acts 10. So before any of this had ever happened, this is Acts 10. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call it unclean. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This is Peter's vision from God about including the Gentiles. And if you read the rest of the passage in Acts 10, he immediately has you know, the application there. He, has, he immediately interacts with Gentiles. So you see the problem. There would be a lot to unpack here, but the important thing is Peter is the one who is given the initial vision for Gentile inclusion. And immediately upon having that vision, he is given influence over the Gentiles. This is an important part of his ministry, not just among Gentiles, but among other leaders. 
Peter is the one who bridges the gap to the Gentiles. Now fast forward to Acts 15, and I'm not quite sure where I put this on the timeline. You can see a lot of the same language, and this isn't to be tedious, like I've got to fill out a whole bunch of times, so we're just going to turn to random spots in the book of Acts. This is really important stuff. Gentile circumcision is a major issue in the early church, and they did have conflict about it. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I just love that. Like, like, there was no small dissension among them. It's like the polite mom way of describing massive conflict among siblings. Like, there was no small disagreement. Like, no, they're all wrestling on the living room floor. Sorry, that's just my own, my own take on the text. There's no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And then, I'm just going to read this to you. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. These are Peter's words. So whether this happened before Galatians or after, you can see, I hope, what's, what's happening here. Peter by withdrawing from table fellowship, has walked away from integrity. He's trying to play act. And he is the one who must not do this. Of anybody in the early church, he represents uh, too much. And there are ways that God has fashioned us as we start to shift toward application. What does integrity look like for us in our places of work, in our spheres of influence? For Peter... It was table fellowship with Gentiles. But you, in your own location, on your own social media, any of that stuff, you represent the inclusive love of God. That there is no boundary anymore. You don't have to be circumcised. Jesus' love is for those who come to him in faith. And there's incredible power in somebody who's in the club in the club, in quotes, expanding the boundaries of that club. And I do worry, from a social standpoint, that the ways that we communicate, the types of things that we communicate, actually shrink the influence of the gospel. Because people make, people make associations. I don't want to get into too much of the weeds on that. But Peter has walked away from integrity And he needs to be confronted. And that's what Paul does. And we, like Peter, in the same way, need to be stripped of our pretense, stripped of our fear. We need this, you know, proverbial kick in the pants from time to time to call us back, to remember who we are, to remember who we follow, to remind us, as 1 John says, that perfect love casts out fear. We don't have to be motivated by fear.
So with all of this as background, and I do realize it's been like trying to sip from a fire hose without, without losing your head, um, we see clearly why Paul has to go after Peter in such an aggressive way. Peter is the one who must not do this. For him to go back is not just an act of personal hypocrisy. Other Jews are led into this. And Paul says even Barnabas, who's a missionary in the church, was carried away by this hypocrisy. It has to be confronted. And when leaders act in this way, I mean, the the point being confusion, when leaders act in this double-minded way, it creates confusion for people. It creates chaos. For you, at work, wherever it is, when we're not single-minded, when we're not singularly focused on the glory of God in the gospel, we create confusion. And I just think it's a call for us to walk in the same integrity, to be single-minded, to be focused on the gospel. And no matter who you are or what you do, I feel like all followers of Jesus are a leader in some way. Whether that's fair or not, I think it's true. People will look to our example and they will make inferences. So for in this particular case, I look at Paul and I think he is standing up for marginalized people. He is doing it at the expense of his own reputation. He does not care that it's Peter. Does not care. These Gentiles need to hear that message that Peter is acting in hypocrisy. And what he, you know, if you focus on the audience, which I think Paul is, when you see another leader standing up to that hypocrisy, it does help to regenerate this sense that, okay, you're not acting consistently with your faith. Um, you, you can put it in a different, a different compartment. I hope, I hope that that makes sense. But boy, what a great thing for the people of God to be known as those who stand up for marginalized people, for people who are not experiencing justice. At the expense of your own reputation, at the expense of your party affiliation, just imagine what it, how powerful it is for people, and I experience this myself in terms of the issues that I care about. I care about environmental issues. So I am thrilled when I see Christians in that sphere standing up legitimately for environmental issues, for people who are marginalized. Right? And it's different when you know them, like when you can put a face to you know, the refugee situation or any of that stuff. When you, when you have a face for what it's like to live with addiction. When you have a a human being in mind and you feel compelled by the gospel to stand up for those people. And I think that's what Paul's really doing here. And I think this is a place for us to pause and to reflect. And as I try to reflect on the passage, those are the types of things I don't resonate with Paul. Because Paul's always right. Paul doesn't, and and part of his strength is he is singularly focused on Jesus. He really doesn't care. And if you read Acts, it's like, wow, this dude does not care about his reputation at all. I can't connect with that because I do care. And I am tempted by fear to live a certain way in front of certain people. I can resonate with Peter, like, all the time. 
like the foot in the mouth, all that stuff. I can connect, I can understand Peter all through the Gospels as just, you know, bumbling through, trying imperfectly, making these great declarations for the Lord, and then 10 seconds later failing in equally colossal ways. Like, I can connect with that. So as I walk into this, it's not a shame-based thing. It's not like, oh, I'm the worst, and then I walk off. God's grace allows us to enter back into that, to enter the story in a more whole way. We don't have to succumb to fear. We don't have to be defined by that. Peter doesn't have to be defined by this failure. And I think if anything, Acts 15, whether it happened before or after, I think it could show that Peter immediately repented of what he did here. There's no record anywhere that Peter tried to defend himself. There's no chance that Peter's like, well, I don't know. Like, I think he was silent, and I think that this very well could have come next. And this is just a perfect illustration of gospel confrontation leading uh, to repentance. And that's what Peter does. Of course Peter's not going to defend himself. Of course he aches for what he has caused here in, in the hypocrisy that he's created. But it allows Peter, it allows us to seek where possible to repair the damage, to re-enter the story in a more whole way. Finally, and very quickly, we turn to the correction. Paul writes, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So I say correction, but more appropriately, this is the beginning of the correction. This sentence is the first part of everything that Paul says to Peter, which continues on for the rest of the chapter. And in confronting Peter, Paul's just reminding Peter of things he already knows. That's what confrontation is. You're calling people back. In Jesus, God has thrown open the door of access to God for all people. Peter knows that. He just needs to be reminded of it. Jesus fulfills every ounce of the law. Those, these are the points that he's going to make. And we have access to God through faith in Jesus. Paul's going to make this case in several different ways, like over the next several chapters. But don't lose sight of the simple fact that it's grace alone that saves us. And it's this same grace that compels us to walk in integrity. This is the identity marker. Freedom in God's spirit, right? We're not going back to these old identity markers. Paul's going to make all of these points in various ways as the letter continues on. But don't lose sight of that trajectory. God is making a new family in Jesus. The old distinctions no longer hold and those containers are just too small for what God's doing. Those old identity markers are just too small. So there's hope for Peter. There's hope for us as well. Though we act in ways that are fearful and hypocritical, we can always lean back into the grace of God, which compels us to walk in integrity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.